0: No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Blog Talk
0: Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening
2: and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom of This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist Five 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 two. Good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host here on the Guest of Freedom, coming to you from www.blackhistoryblog.com. You can also pick us up on www.blackhistoryuniversity.com. Tonight, we're going to continue to listen to an excerpt from William Steele's book, The Underground Railroad, and what we're listening to tonight is called A Bold Stripe for Freedom. Joining me is my guest, Eric Estep. Are you there, Eric?
0: Yes, actually, it's English. It's pronounced East Step, but it's a common mistake. I'm sorry. Yeah, Eric it's E Step, Step. yes, yeah, long, long E. Sorry. Mm-hmm. But most of the time it's pronounced S-W. So. Okay Well, tell our
2: listeners a little bit about you, Eric
0: Well, sure I think the first thing they need to know is that I'm wearing a Cub shirt and I live in uh, St. Louis So I uh, I actually, seriously, I'm an associate professor At Southern Illinois uh, University Edwardsville About 15 miles east of uh, of St. Louis I've been here a couple years uh, We're the Cougars um I'd like to just dedicate uh, this show to my father, David, and his step, who died uh, three and a half years ago in Edenton, North Carolina. Um, he was a great guy, and uh, wherever he's at, you know, I love you, Dad, and I miss you. Uh, in terms of my scholarship, uh, the last book I published is uh, The Generation X Librarian, along with Martin Wallace and um, Rebecca Tolley-Stokes. It was published in 2011 by McFarlane Press. I have an upcoming book. By Library Juice Press with Nathaniel Enright called Class and Librarianship. that should be out in the fall. Uh coming up, I'll be at ALA in less than two weeks, moderating a panel up in Chicago, McCormick Place. Recently published an article in three uh, percent press, um on David Foster Wallace. It was a semi o to David Foster Wallace it was published in April. Pretty proud of that writing. I have a lot of other projects on the uh book review editor of Progressive Librarian. And uh, that's just kind of a, the Cliff Notes version. I've always been in love with history. Uh, I was born in Kingsport, Tennessee, and I've been a history fanatic ever since. And I'm honored to be on your show. I hope I can do as well as the other guests.
2: Well, I'm sure you will. Now, you said you had a book out
0: already? Yes. Last... it's a, Yeah, it's called The Generation X Librarian. Uh, it was co-edited with uh, Martin Wallace, who's uh, at, I believe, at the University of Maine. Uh, Rebecca Tolley-Stokes who's at East Tennessee State, which is where my father went, in Johnson City, close to where I was born. And I was the third co-editor. And it was published in May of 2011. And it was, it's you know kind of an interesting book, obviously, I'm a source. But we had a collection of essays from uh, a variety of perspectives. And it was very, you know, multicultural, from all kinds of perspectives, class. It's a uh, veritable potpourri, and um, I think it's an excellent book. It's been out for a couple of years. Macfarland Press is in Western North Carolina. They'll have a booth up at ALA, and I encourage people to purchase the book. You can go to McFarlane's website, and it's an ebook format now. It's been out for a couple of years, and I think it deserves wider circulation because you know we've been talking about generations for a long time, and you know tonight we're talking about it's a story about generations.
2: Okay, where is
0: that book available from? Uh, McFarland Press. If you go to m- the McFarland Press website, you can get it. Also, it's on Amazon.com. Uh, basically, any place online. It's, it's a book that's not available, I don't think, in the bookstores. I think it's, I want to say it's about 50 bucks now, but uh, don't quote me on that. It's okay. been out for a while. I think it's an excellent book, but I'm biased.
2: Okay. I want to say to our producer, um ask her if she can see me and um okay, don't know when we'll be starting uh with our reading of the or listening to
0: oh that's, this ex- that's okay, it's a nice, balmy Sunday night, so it's a pleasant yeah
2: week. so you here with William Still's work, I'm sorry. Are you uh, familiar with William Steele's work? This particular
0: oh, yes, book? yes, I, I was reading it all week. I mean, I think it's... I was at Swarthmore College um, in 2006, and I was able to, you know, go into the archives there, and I'm very much familiar with uh, the Underground Railroad and that story, and I think it's fascinating. Um, you know, I mean, I I think it points to where we're going in our country. You know, history is eternal. And, you know, I'm one of those people, I'm an optimist about this country. And I think something like you know the Underground Railroad and the way you know starting up in up in Pennsylvania, you know because we all know about Harriet Tubman, and I I think that just those stories need to be told because that that brings our country together. And I feel very strongly about that. And I think that as long as we have these conversations, I think it's important. You know that's what democracy is all about is talking. And uh, and you know I think I was I was cheered to see it in the Atlantic.
2: Yes, Uh, can you give our, we're going to introduce the clip. Sure. And uh, go from that, and I'll be taking notes. And um, if anyone wants to join us, feel free to do so. And uh, the clip will be starting here shortly, Uh, probably cutting me off, but that's okay. Okay, great. And the clip we're listening to again is from William Still's book, THE UNDERGROUND RAILROAD, BOLD STRIKE FOR FREEDOM.
1: SECTION 30 OF THE UNDERGROUND RAILROAD, PART 1. THIS IS A LIBRIVOX RECORDING. ALL LIBRIVOX RECORDINGS ARE IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. FOR MORE INFORMATION, OR TO VOLUNTEER, PLEASE VISIT LIBRIVOX.ORG. THE UNDERGROUND RAILROAD, PART 1, BY WILLIAM STILL. SECTION 30. BARNABY, GRIGBY, ELIAS JOHN BOYER, AND MARY ELIZABETH, HIS WIFE. Frank Wainser, Elias Robert Scott, Emily Foster, Elias Ann Wood. Two others who started with them were captured. All these persons journeyed together from Loden County, Virginia, on horseback and in a carriage for more than 100 miles. Availing themselves of a holiday, and their master's horses, and carriage, they as deliberately started for Canada, as though they had never been taught that it was their duty as servants to obey their master's in this particular showing a most utter disregard of the intent of their kind-hearted and indulgent owners. They left home on Monday, Christmas Eve, 1855, under the leadership of Frank Wainzer, and arrived in Columbia the following Wednesday at one o'clock. As witfully as they had thus made their way along, they had not found it smooth sailing by any means. The biting frost and snow rendered their travel anything but agreeable, Nor did they escape the gnawings of hunger, traveling day and night, and whilst these articles were in the very act of running away with themselves and their kind masters' best horses and carriage, when about one hundred miles from home, in the neighborhood of Cheat River, Maryland, they were attacked by six white men and a boy, who, doubtless, supposing that their intentions were of a wicked and unlawful character, felt it to be their duty and kindness to their masters if not to the travelers, to demand of them an account of themselves. In other words, the assailants positively commanded the fugitives to show what right they possessed to be found in a condition apparently so unwarranted. The spokesmen among the fugitives, affecting no ordinary amount of dignity, told their assailants plainly that no gentleman would interfere with persons riding along civilly, not allowing it to be supposed that they were slaves, of course these gentlemen however were not willing to accept this account of the travelers as their very decided steps indicated having the law on their side they were for compelling the fugitives to surrender without further parley at this juncture the fugitives verily believing that the time had arrived for the practical use of their pistols and dirks pulled them out of their concealment the young woman as well as the young men and declared they would not be taken One of the white men raised his gun, pointed the muzzle directly towards one of the young women, with the threat that he would shoot, etc. "'Shoot, shoot, shoot!' she exclaimed, with a double-barreled pistol in one hand and a long dirk knife in the other, utterly unterrified and fully ready for a death struggle. The male leader of the fugitives by this time had pulled back the hammers of his pistols and was about to fire." Their adversaries, seeing the weapons and the unflinching determination on the part of the runaways to stand their ground, spill blood, kill, or die, rather than be taken, very prudently sidled off to the other side of the road, leaving at least four of the victors to travel on their way. At this moment, the four in the carriage lost sight of the two on horseback. Soon after the separation, they heard firing, but what the result was they knew not, They were fearful, however, that their companions had been captured. The following paragraph, which was shortly afterwards taken from a Southern paper, leaves no room to doubt as to the fate of the two. Six fugitive slaves from Virginia were arrested at the Maryland line near Hood's Mill on Christmas Day, but after a severe fight, four of them escaped and have not since been heard of. They came from Lodon and Fackier Counties. Though the four who were successful saw no severe fight, it is not unreasonable to suppose that there was a fight, nevertheless, but not till after the number of the fugitives had been reduced to two instead of six. As chivalrous as slaveholders and slave catchers were, they knew the value of their precious lives and the fearful risk of attempting a capture when the numbers were equal. The party in the carriage after the conflict went on their way rejoicing. The young men one cold night when they were compelled to take rest in the woods and snow, in vain strove to keep the feet of their female companions from freezing by lying on them, but the frost was merciless and bit them severely, as their feet very plainly showed. The following disjointed report was cut from the Frederick, Maryland, examiner, soon after the occurrence took place. Six slaves, four men and two women, fugitives from Virginia, having with them two spring wagons and four horses, came from Hood's Mill on the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, near the dividing line from Frederick and Carroll Counties, on Christmas Day. After feeding their animals, one of them told a Mr. Dixon once they came. Believing them to be fugitives, he spread the alarm, and some eight or ten persons gathered round to arrest them. But the Negroes, drawing revolvers and bowie knives, kept their assailants at bay, until five of the party succeeded in escaping in one of the wagons, And as the last one jumped on a horse to flee, he was fired at, the load taking effect in the small of the back. The prisoner says he belongs to Charles W. Simpson, Esquire, of Fauquier County, Virginia, and ran away with the others on the preceding evening. This report from the examiner, while it is not wholly correct, evidently relates to the fugitives above described. Why the reporter made such glaring mistakes may be accounted for on the grounds that the bold stand made by the fugitives was so bewildering and alarming that the assailants were not in proper condition to make correct statements. Nevertheless, the examiner's report was preserved with other records and is here given for what it is worth. These victors were individually noted on the record thus. Barnaby was owned by William Rogers, a farmer, who was considered a moderate slaveholder, although of late addicted to intemperance. He was the owner of about one dozen head of slaves, and had besides a wife and two children. Barnaby's chances for making extra change for himself were never favorable. Sometimes, of nights, he would manage to earn a trifle. He was prompted to escape because he wanted to live by the sweat of his own brow, believing that all men ought to live so. This was the only reason he gave for fleeing. Mary Elizabeth had been owned by Townsend McVeigh, likewise a farmer, and in Mary's judgment he was severe, but, she added, his wife made him so. McVie owned about twenty-five slaves. He hardly allowed them to talk, would not allow them to raise chickens, and only allowed Mary three dresses a year. The rest she had to get as she could. Sometimes McVie would sell slaves. Last year he sold two. Mary said that she could not say anything good of her mistress. On the contrary, she declared that her mistress knew no mercy, nor showed any favor. It was on account of this domineering spirit that Mary was induced to escape. Frank was owned by Lother Sullivan, the meanest man in Virginia, he said. He treated his people just as bad as he could in every respect. Sullivan, added Frank, would lounge the slaves and stint them to save food and get rich, and would sell and whip, etc. To Frank's knowledge, he had sold some twenty-five head. Quote, he sold my mother and her two children to georgia some four years previous" but the motive which hurried frank to make his flight was his laboring under the apprehension that his master had some pretty heavy creditors who might come on him at any time frank therefore wanted to be home in canada when these gentry should make their visit my poor mother has been often flogged by masters said frank as to his mistress he said she was tolerably good Anne Wood was owned by McVie also, and was own sister to Elizabeth, and very fully sustained her sister Elizabeth's statements respecting the character of her master. The above-mentioned four were all young and likely. Barnaby was twenty-six years of age, mulatto, medium-sized, and intelligent. His wife was about twenty-four years of age, quite dark, good-looking, and of pleasant appearance. Frank was twenty-five years of age, mulatto, and very smart. Anne was 22, good-looking and smart. After their pressing wants had been met by the Vigilance Committee and after partial recuperation from their hard travel, etc., they were forwarded to the Vigilance Committee in New York. In Syracuse, Frank, the leader, who was engaged to Emily, concluded that the knot might as well be tied on the Underground Railroad, although penniless, as to delay the matter a single day longer. Doubtless the bravery, struggles, and trials of Emily throughout the journey had, in his estimation, added not a little to her charms. Thus, after consulting with her on the matter, her approval was soon obtained, she being too prudent and wise to refuse the hand of one who had proved himself a true friend to freedom as well as so devoted to her. The twain were accordingly made one at the Underground Railroad Station in Syracuse by superintendent... Rev. J. W. Logwin. After this joyful event, they proceeded to Toronto and were there gladly received by the Ladies' Society for Aiding Colored Refugees. The following letter from Miss Agnes Willis, the wife of the distinguished Rev. Dr. Willis, brought the gratifying intelligence that these brave young adventurers fell into the hands of distinguished characters and warm friends of freedom. Toronto, 28th of January. "'Monday Evening, 1856. "'Mr. Still, dear sir, "'I have very great pleasure in making you aware "'that the following respectable persons "'have arrived here in safety "'without being annoyed in any way after you saw them. "'The woman, two of them, viz. Mrs. Grigsby and Mrs. Graham, "'have been rather ailing, "'but we hope they will very soon be well. "'They have been attended to by the Ladies' Society "'and are most grateful for any attention they have received.' The solitary person, Mrs. Graves, has also been attended to. Also, her box will be looked after. She is pretty well, but rather dull. However, she will get friends and feel more at home, by and by. Mrs. Wainzer is quite well, and also young William Henry Sanderson. They are all of them in pretty good spirits, and I have no doubt they will succeed in whatever business they take up. In the meantime, the men are chopping wood, and the ladies are getting plenty sewing. "'We are always glad to see our colored refugees safe here. "'I remain, dear sir, yours respectfully, Agnes Willis, "'treasurer to the Ladies' Society to aid colored refugees. "'For a time, Frank enjoyed his newly-won freedom and happy bride, "'with bright prospects all around. "'But the thought of having left sisters and other relatives in bondage "'was a source of sadness in the midst of his joy. "'He was not long, however, in making up his mind "'that he would deliver them or die in the attempt.' Deliberately forming his plans to go south, he resolved to take upon himself the entire responsibility for all the risks to be encountered. Not a word did he reveal to a living soul of what he was about to undertake. With $22 in cash and three pistols in his pocket, he started in the lightning train from Toronto for Virginia. On reaching Columbia in this state, he deemed it not safe to go any farther by public conveyance. Consequently, he commenced his long journey on foot and as he neared the slave territory he traveled by night altogether for two weeks night and day he avoided trusting himself in any house consequently was compelled to lodge in the woods nevertheless during that space of time he succeeded in delivering one of his sisters and her husband and another friend in the bargain you can scarcely imagine the committee's amazement on his return as they looked upon him and listened to his noble deeds of daring and his triumph a more brave and self-possessed man they had never seen. He knew what slavery was and the dangers surrounding him on his mission, but possessing true courage, unlike most men, he pictured no alarming difficulties in a distance of nearly one thousand miles by the mail route, though the enemy's country where he might have in truth said, I could not pass without running the gauntlet of mobs and assassins, prisons and penitentiaries, bailiffs and constables, etc. If this hero had dwelt upon and magnified the obstacles in his way, he would most assuredly have kept off the enemy's country, and his sister and friends would have remained in chains. The following were the persons delivered by Frank wainzer They were his trophies, and this noble act of Frank should ever be held as a memorial and honor. The committee's brief record made on their arrival runs thus. August eighteenth, eighteen 1856. Frank wainzer Robert Stewart, Elias Gaspari robinson vincent smith elias john jackson betsy smith wife of vincent smith elias fanny jackson they all came from alder lowden county virginia robert is about thirty years of age medium size dark chestnut color intelligent and resolute he was held by the widow hutchinson who was also the owner of about one hundred others Robert regarded her as a very hard mistress until the death of her husband, which took place the fall previous to his escape. That sad affliction, he thought, was the cause of a considerable change in her treatment of her slaves. But yet nothing was said about freedom on her part. This reticence, Robert understood to mean that she was still unconverted on this great cardinal principle, at least. As he could see no prospect of freedom through her agency— When Frank approached him with a good report from Canada and his friends there, he could scarcely wait to listen to the glorious news. He was so willing and anxious to get out of slavery. His dear old mother, Sarah Davis, and four brothers and two sisters, William, Thomas, Frederick, and Samuel, Violet, and Ellen, were all owned by Mrs. Hutchinson. Dear as they were to him, he saw no way to take them with him, nor was he prepared to remain a day longer under the yoke. So he decided to accompany Frank, let the cost be what it might. Vincent is about 23 years of age, very likely looking, dark color, and more than ordinarily intelligent for one having only the common chances of slaves. He was owned by the estate of Nathan Skinner, who was looked upon by those who knew him as a good slaveholder. In slave property, however, he was only interested to the number of 12 head. Skinner neither sold nor emancipated. A year and a half before Vincent escaped, his master was called to give an account of his stewardship, and there in the spirit land Vincent was willing to let him remain, without much more to add about him. Vincent left his mother, Judith Smith, and brothers and sisters, Edwin, Angeline, Sina Anne, Adeline Susan, George, John, and Louis, all belonging to the estate of Skinner. Vincent was fortunate enough to bring his wife along with him. She was about 27 years of age, of a brown color, and smart, and was owned by the daughter of the widow Hutchinson. This mistress was said to be a clever woman. End of section 30.
0: Okay, Okay. so... Yeah, I'm uh... I'm sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I would just like to comment on that, uh, kind of w- within context, if I may. I uh, Before coming to SAUE I was the uh, publisher of the North Carolina Periodicals Index. And I, just, I, would, I don't want it to sound like an Oscar's acceptance speech, but I would like to highlight some really great historical resources. And East Carolina, especially, well, both Laupage and Junior Library, but the special collections there is a, a treasure for, for uh, African-American or Southern history or any kind of history. Uh Mari York is the uh, head of um uh, Special Collections there is a Southern gentleman of the highest order. And it's really a testament. That is fantastic. John Lawrence, uh, Jan Lewis, uh Barry Munson, too many people really to mention um you know, grad assistants like Dean Marshall Tuck and Elizabeth Howland, uh Matt Reynolds who did a fantastic job of organizing the North Carolina or uh supervising the students. I mean, they've and uh William O'Neill, who's there, they, it's really a fantastic resource. I encourage people if if they find that uh, audio, which is fantastic, you know, it's free. I mean, that's what librarians do. We're kind of the Ringo stars of the academic world. You know, uh, we support people. I, I encourage people to look at that collection. It's a it's a rich resource. You can find it online pretty easily. Unfortunately, I can't remember the URL, but the North Carolina uh, Periodicals Index, the NCPI, is just a tremendous resource. And, uh, you know, people like North Carolina Periodicals Index.
2: North Carolina Periodical Index.
0: Okay. So that's at East Carolina University. There's also a special okay. collections in uh, Chapel Hill, but I, I would like to focus on on Eastern Carolina because there's a lot of there's a rich history there too. Okay, great. Um, in um, terms of, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, in terms of what we just heard, I think it's it's a great example of kind of uh, globalization, you know. You had the Underground Railroad, you had Canada, which was free, you know, under English rule, and you had people moving up and down the coast, and not the coast, I'm sorry, but you, I think you understand what I'm saying, up and down North America. When we think of globalization, that's kind of one of the buzzwords today, but globalization has been with us everywhere, and I think a narrative like that kind of brings history to four. I mean I I've tremendous students at uh I've had tremendous students, five tremendous students but many of them you know I think that the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor. And uh I think it's probably relies too much on Wikipedia. And a reading like this which is free and a podcast like this gives history its living history. Um I think the still narrative is very important because it's its hidden history. You know? Exactly. I mean, you know, go ahead. I'm sorry.
2: I think it um, when we opened up uh, the show, you made a comment about how the uh, narrative was uh, really uh, comparative to what's going on today. And sure enough, I heard in the clip, uh, "Stand Your Ground," This kind of reminded me of the case that's going on down there in Florida right now.
0: It does, and, and I think it's important to put these things in context because. I had a Professor uh, James Farr at a uh, Purdue University, and he told us one time that you know we're like zombies walking around if we don't know our history, and you know what's going on in Brevard County, I believe it's Brevard County. I think that uh I think we need to take a deep breath and look at the history of our country you know that's that's a hot button issue, but if you take a look at the context of history, it doesn't need to be
2: exactly and i
0: think and I think that we need to take a deep breath collectively, look at it analytically, and keep our powder dry, because these are these are tense times, and I think we need to put things into perspective. So many young people today, they don't have perspective. They look on Facebook, and they think they want to be famous. You know, the, the third book I'm working on is a political thought of Christopher Lash, and the working title is You're So Vain You Think This Book Is About You. You don't have a publisher yet, so if anyone wants to publish it, I'd be happy to listen to offers. And I think there's a role narcissism in our culture, and that's because we don't know our history. We think we're the first people to, to found things, or we're the first people to suffer. And, you know, part of life is suffering, and I think we need to put this into context. You know, that's what history does. Because if you if you look at it, today's Father's Day, right? But there was a, you know, I mean, we've been honoring our fathers for thousands of years, and we just don't have that context. And that's why, that's why this podcast is so valuable, you, you know, and it kind of... It's not spoon-feeding to listen to something online because it's providing a different outlet. That's what we do as librarians. Mm-hmm. And I think it's why this podcast is so important because this is something I, I wasn't that familiar with until I read the article in the Atlantic.
2: I see. Uh, you mentioned young people, and one thing I would want them to be aware of are the newspaper accounts. Uh, we heard in the reading that there were a number of newspaper accounts Um Relative to uh that escape of those uh, I think it started out as six and wound up being four
0: something like that that sounds about right i think yeah. and I, and again, you know those newspaper accounts are amazing you know at, at uh southern Illinois Edwardsville, where I'm at now, we have the historical New York Times and that's just a big paper and I always tell students you know look at the record, look at the you know New York Times is the paper record, it's mainstream, but you know look at smaller newspapers. Imagine yourself going back in time. We had, a in 2011, we had a kind of a, I guess you call it like a fair for students. It was kind of a, my, uh, my department had Lydia Jackson, who was just uh, named Fullhead this year during Black History Month. She had the idea of having a, uh, kind of like a fair. And what we did is, it's online, so you can go online and look at these things. If you go to Lovejoy Library, all these things are online. And what we had the students do is we had the students pick a date looking at the historical New York Times. And so that what that did, which I think is great, is that you know, maybe their birthday, you know. I mean I was born, I hate to hate to say it, September third, nineteen seventy, and I'm getting kinda of old. But uh you know, those students going back, say, you know, to nineteen eighty one, nineteen eighty five, it puts their puts their own history into context.
2: Yeah, earlier you mentioned on uh, Swarthmore College. Could you uh, yeah. let our
0: listeners explain to our listeners why
2: that college and Pennsylvania oh. was important to the Underground yes. Railroad?
0: Yes. Uh, my old friend Ed Fuller, who passed away last fall, he's a uh, long-time librarian there. We talked about that a, long, a lot, as well with Ann Garrison, who's still there, the literature librarian. And it's a Quaker school. Uh, John Densmore is the archivist there. and The Quakers were uh, key in freeing the slaves they uh they provided the moral ballast, you know they didn't provide the bullets because they're Quakers, and let's not forget Richard Nixon was a Quaker, so you know history's complicated, but they provided the moral ballast, the moral arguments uh to end slavery um, and I think that, you know it was it, it was a haven sophomore was a haven for for free thought and for abolitionist thinking, you know it's one of the best colleges in the country but People don't realize the roots of swap and a lot of people think, well, you know, that's where Michael Dukakis went, but it goes back farther than that. They provided kind of the connective tissue in the Underground Railroad. I mean, Philadelphia is such an interesting city itself. You know, many people say it's the northernmost southern city or the southernmost northern city, but it's kind of one of those linchpins on the road to freedom.
2: Yeah, this arsenal, it sounds like a John Brown kind of... Uh move there in terms of the arsenal. Um these escapees uh seem to be heavily armed. Not only with what is uh, the one lady had a double barrel pistol and a knife.
0: Right. And I mean I think at Harpers Ferry, Brown had pikes, is what I want to say in in uh Harpers Ferry, Virginia at the time. I mean and that's the real I mean that's the real tension, you know. John Brown is kind of one of those third rail figures in American history, because he was a revolutionary. Many people think he's a, he was a revolutionary. He was a man ahead of his time. I mean, they, you know, they sang, the Union soldiers sang, John Brown's body, as you know. I mean, I'm not talking to our listeners. Saying, you know, uh, John Brown's body, Martin, uh, marching at grave. I'm sorry, I can't quite get the words right. And, uh, you know, Brown was a guy, I mean, I, think, I believe it was 1859, I want to say, the Harper's Raid, and... You know, I mean, he he was a guy that was ahead of his time, but you know, in the South, that's a controversial still to this day. And then, if you want to go farther south uh, from uh, from Brown, you have i uh, Dr- I'm sorry, uh, the slave rebellion in Southern Virginia. Uh, Nathaniel, I'm sorry, help me out here. Uh, Fires of Jubilee. Um,
2: oh, um, the minister.
0: No, it was a, a black slave who led a revolt in the 1830s and um, who wrote a book about that. Uh, Stephen Oates wrote a book about it, it was The Fires of Jubilee. But that was kind of an uh, incendiary thing, too. Uh, was it Nathaniel Scott? I can't. I'm sorry, it escapes me right now. But it's all connected together, you know. Because, I mean, if you look at John Brown, I mean, Brown was an iconic figure of the time. I mean, I live in, uh, you know, in St. close to St. Louis, and Kansas isn't far away from us. You know, bloody Kansas. I work at Nat a library named Andrew. after an abolitionist, Lovejoy. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it was Nat Turner. Nat Is Turner, I'm sorry, I'm so of, tired. <laughs>
2: there in uh, Virginia in the early 1830s. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's who it was. Yeah, I mean,
0: right. I'm sorry. In <laughs> St. Louis, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, that that kind of connective tissue is it's important to know this because context is vital. You know, it's vital. And I think that that narrative, you know, it's it's something that we need to keep hammering home because if we don't understand our history what's happening, that trial happening in Brevard County, I think that we'll We'll get too excited about it, you know. The United States has always been a multi-ethnic democracy, however you want to cut it. I mean, slavery was our founding uh, sin. But within our Constitution, there's always a way for people to get along. And I don't think people realize that. You know, have people talking about how horrible things are today. They don't realize that we had an election during our Civil War in 1864. I don't know too many Civil Wars where they actually had democratic elections. So things, you, things have been... I'm sorry, go ahead, I'm sorry, sir
2: I mentioned uh, Bleeding Kansas Is that what got John Brown involved?
0: I think so, I mean, there's a lot of good books on that Russell Banks wrote a good novel Called, I want to say, Dreamcatcher I can't recall right now And there's been a lot of literature on Brown I think I think John Brown was a guy Who believed in the cause He was a true believer You could almost say he was the Che Guevara of his times I know that's being anachronistic I think Kansas Kansas inflamed a lot of people Because it was a border state You know, you had the you know, the 1850 Compromise, and I think that if you think of the United States as moving west, the states in the middle, those, those are always going to be hot. You know, there's a civil war within a civil war. I mean, that was like a pre-Civil War okay. war um, there. I mean, Brown, you know, executed slaveholders, slaveholders executed abolitionists. I mean, the library I work at now um, was named after an abolitionist who was murdered. He was thrown into the, uh, I want to say, the Mississippi River. This press was destroyed. When I walk to work, I see a portrait of Abraham Lincoln. So, okay. you know, especially living in kind of a border state, border region, you know, the history—the history is right in front of you. I mean, Faulkner has that great quote. You know, that, I'm going to butcher it because I'm on—I'm live, but uh, history isn't even past. Or, I'm sorry. Probably, my apologies to William Faulkner. But you know, so I think that—that that, uh, you know, Brown was a guy. He was a true believer. And he was willing to do what it takes, but at the same time, you know, his rebellion didn't work. Frederick Douglass had a chance to join him. He didn't do it, you know, to Frederick yeah. Douglass' acumen and, and credit. And I think Brown even thought that he wouldn't win. I mean, he, he armed his troops with pikes. Robert E. Lee and, and Jeb Stewart came in with the Marines and quickly, fairly quickly snuffed it out. And I think I can't remember what Brown said when when they hung him, but I think everything, every most intelligent people knew that a storm was coming, and I think Brown was was sort of a prophet for that storm.
2: Yeah, and Brown was actually when all that border war started there in Kansas, that leading Kansas that you mentioned, and uh, he was actually freeing and defending whites uh, because whites started killing whites. That's right.
0: Was, I mean, I, I, I yeah, because. There's a situation that they're fighting over over free labor. I mean, there's Eric Foner wrote a great book called "Free Soil, um, Free Labor." I think free people. I mean, I'm I'm butchering it. Um, I don't have it in front of me, but that was about the founding of the Republican Party and really the fight in Kansas. Also, a, a great love, a great historian, Steve Hansen, wrote a book about the Republican Party in Illinois, and I think that really it was about you know should. Free labor, should it should be free labor or slave labor. You know. I mean Lincoln I mean most of us have I think have seen the Spielberg's Lincoln, which was fantastic. And that was a conversation really about you know Did you say
2: did you mention that the film of Lincoln was fantastic? Is that what did I mention?
0: Well I said most people thought it was fantastic. You think? <laughs> I'm gonna hedge my bets. <laughs> I'm gonna hedge my bets on that. Okay. My well, my meant- respect no, no, no. My perspective, okay, I'll give you my perspective. I saw it was, sure. I, I think that, I mean, Spielberg um, is hit or miss. I think there's a lot of schmaltz with Spielberg. I think, and I've been to uh, the Lincoln Museum in Springfield, and it was marvelous. I went with my friend uh, Chad Call. And I think that, um, I think Daniel Day-Lewis nailed the performance. However, it was based on a really shitty, well, I'm sorry, I can't say that, a really bad book by Doris Kearns Goodwin is a plagiarist. And I thought it was appalling that Hollywood would use a plagiarist. did work. Was that the book, uh, The Team of Rivals? Right, she's a plagiarist. I mean, she didn't plagiarize that, but she pra- plagiarized previous books. So he took a hack historian's book, which any person can, you know, reading their morning table. It's kind of a mediocre book. But what I think really centered the movie, and I, which I think it is a good movie, and I'm aware of the controversy, is that Daniel day Lewis's performance centered that. Now, of course, did they get things wrong about emancipation? They did. They did, because the slaves freed themselves. But it was also teamwork. And I think Spielberg was right to telescope that into a certain time, because the team arrivals rivals was about the four years. Um, speaking of Kansas, um, Thomas Frank had a good piece in Harper's, who's very critical of the book, or of the movie, about how basically it's just a corporate... You see that corporate ideology. Let's just get a team of rivals, you know, corporate consultants. And he critiqued the movie on that basis. However, you know, I'm a centrist. A centrist, must hold. I think Spielberg got the gist of it. You know, he got the spirit of Lincoln. And it's called Lincoln. So I think it is a good movie. I do think that the criticisms are valid, but it's also just a movie. So,
2: yeah, uh I'm hedging uh, my bet. Say- Repeat that again, uh, for our listeners about what the slaves did. In terms well they of the emancipated pre-
0: themselves. People don't realize so, that, that so. they emancipated themselves. The Union the Union army was composed mostly not mostly I don't have the numbers in front of me. But they don't realize the bravery of the black troops and also the white officers. There was a massacre in Fort Pillow, which is about three or four south three or four hours south of here, don't quote me on this, but Nathan Bedford Forrest you know, Confederates, generally speaking, wouldn't take black Union troops prisoner. And what they would do is they would massacre them on the field of battle and also execute the Union officers. And people don't realize that <laughs> at all. And it was a great, it was a, the Union army became a war of, when it was January 1st, 1863 happened, the Union army became an army of liberation. Everywhere they went, and slaves were going into their lines, freeing themselves. So, really, it was self-emancipation, but you needed the bayonets of the Union Army, too. I mean, the Quakers, great, you know, peace, love, and forgiveness. I believe in peace. I'm a pacifist myself. But you also needed bayonets to win that war. And it was, in many cases, it was black bayonets.
2: Yeah, I think that's a very important point you brought out uh, in that blacks freed themselves after facing one of the worst forms of slavery on Earth. You know, you and were that's true. and, and, and what's interesting is that
0: the, con, con, yeah, the Confederacy in its dying days also armed their slaves. They, they, in March of 1865, Judah Benjamin went to England and France and said, we'll free our slaves if you recognize us. It's far too little, far too late. So there were black Confederate troops marching in Richmond. And mostly that was just the South was running out of man. I mean, I'm not an expert on that era. So basically, black soldiers were fighting on both sides. Which is astonishing, if you think about it. But that, Yeah, that's and the
2: majority, were, the majority were fighting for the Union.
0: Oh, vast majority, 95%, 99%. And this was a desperate measure. Let me be clear, this was at the near the end of the Civil War. This was March of 1865. I mean, Appomattox was just a month away. And, and they, they marched a regiment in Richmond. So this was the Confederacy playing its last card. They were forced into it. There's a very good book about, uh, it's called Union in Peril. I think written by a guy by the name of Charles Jones, University of North Carolina Press came out like in nineteen ninety, which kinda of highlights that because the key to the Confederate strategy was to get Britain and France to formally recognize them and they would do anything for that. So if if they free their slaves then they take the odious stain of slavery off the table. But by March eighteen sixty five the Confederacy was losing badly. So it was a very pragmatic measure. And it would never have happened had there not been the Emancipation Proclamation. It was important to get these things in order. But, yeah, the vast majority fought for their freedom. And, of course, they were coerced in fighting for the Confederate Army. I think they were maybe given the opportunity for their freedom. In Louisiana, there were Creoles fighting for the Confederacy, and Stan Wadey in the West, Native American, had slaves fighting for the Confederacy. So, you know, the Civil War is complicated.
2: Stan Wadey was um, a Cherokee general.
0: Uh, That's right, for the
2: Confederacy. The highest-ranking the highest, uh, the highest ranking Native American in the Civil and War.
0: And I believe brought, it was the o- Oklahoma Territory at the time, or maybe Arkansas, I can't remember. Oh, it was Indian
2: Territory at the time. Indian
0: Territory at the time, I'm sorry.
2: Yeah, and the okay. Cherokee Nation was in the northeast part of what we now know as Oklahoma.
0: Correct, thank you, I appreciate that. I
2: want to remind our listeners uh, that the Statue of... Frederick Douglass is going to be unveiled at the U.S. Ooh, that's great on uh, Juneteenth Day, which is the nineteenth yes, of June. Juneteenth,
0: Ra- Ralph 11. Ellison, yeah, Br- yes, 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 sir.
2: At uh, eleven a.m. So for those that was the who Battle are... of
0: Brownsville. That was the last battle of the Civil War. Yeah, Ralph Ellison's second novel, posthumous Juneteenth, which is brilliant. Yes, sir. Yeah. So that's great. I did not know Frederick Douglass a statue. Finally, finally. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> finally. <laughs> I thought he was
2: been up before Martin Luther King, but in any event, um, we've got to start wrapping this up. Okay. And do you have now? You mentioned some books. Do you have any engagements coming up, or
0: I do. Anything? I do have the one. Yes. Uh, I I will be a moderator of a panel at the American Library Association conference in Chicago. It's the Law and Political Science section. Uh, my friends, my friends at LPSS, Lila Flores. Uh, I'm sorry. What are the dates? Uh, The dates, it's June, two weeks from now, but it's uh, Saturday. And I believe it's at 1.30. It's the McCormick Place. You have to register for the conference, the American Library Association Conference. I believe it's the second biggest book conference in the world. And it's two weeks from this weekend. Um, I don't know what the prices are to register, but if you register, you can come in and hear me moderate a panel. The so Law and Political Science, Section LPSS, I want to say it's at one thirty, Saturday. And what's today's date, sir? I'm sorry. I'm a little tired. Today's the 16th, right? So it would be uh, June uh,
2: 29th. Okay, great. And contact information, if our listeners want to get a hold of you, how would they do that?
0: Sure. It's uh, actually the British, the late Eric Hobsbawm, it's H-O-B. Sbawm17@gmail.com. 17 at gmail.com. Okay. Best way to reach can they, me. Can
2: they contact you on Facebook?
0: Yes, they can, and I'm, I'll be happy to speak at any engagement. I'm a publicity whore, so. Okay. <laughs> be happy to do it. Any, you know, if you want me for your bar mitzvah, it might cost a little more, but apart from that, I'll be happy to, happy to talk history, you know. So please feel free to contact me. I have I've quite a bit of time available these days.
2: Okay, great. Eric, I really appreciate your uh, joining us on such short notice. I'm honored. Um, for our listeners, um, my guest tonight has been Eric Estep. Yeah, so
0: Longy, <laughs>
2: And we've been talking uh, history here, abolitionist-type history. Also listen to the, an excerpt from William Steele's book, The Underground Railroad, The Bold Strike for Freedom. And uh, you've been listening to The Gist of Freedom, S G I S T G-I-S-T of Freedom. Our producer is Leslie Gist. And if you want to contact Leslie, you can do that at Leslie at com. My name is Preston Washington. I've been your host here in Kansas City, Missouri. Good night, everybody. Yes,
0: thank you. Let's do this again.
2: Okay, take care.
0: Thank you, sir. All right. It was an honor.
1: Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
0: Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, uh-huh, in my dentist's office.